0: Back to bed, America. Your government is in control. Read my lips.
1: Just send your cash. There has never been so many lies, so much deception. (laughs) Doesn't anyone notice
0: this? I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. Ah! Please clap. It's time for the Mike Madison Show, a new breed of conservative talk. Now, here's your host. Mike Madison. ZOTA! Woo!
1: All right, good morning. Welcome to the Mike Madison Show here at 1039 WYAB. As always, thank you for joining me today. I'm um, actually, this show is pre recorded, as many of you know. Recorded this on Wednesday night, so I'm after a big fat hamburger steak and a beer. I I wanted to give a warning about a beer. I'm not a beer connoisseur guy. I've always joked with people about my redneck palate. I pretty much am a, a Coors Light guy. I go out to nice bars with my friends, and they would order all this uh, microbrew stuff and IPAs, and and I, you know, I I cut my teeth professionally in the uh, in the bar business, managing restaurants and nightclubs. So I'm no stranger to drinks, but I've never really developed a taste for kind of these craft beers. I, I think a lot of people pretend to like some of these things because it's much cooler. It's kind of like scotch. I've never been able to, I'm a bourbon drinker, but I've never been a scotch drinker. And I still try it every now and then thinking, I must be missing something, you know, my my taste buds are aging. Maybe I'll really like it this time. People will tell me, well, here's how you do it. You know, you put it on a little bit of ice and you wait a few minutes and I've tried it every which way but loose and I, I, I just can't get behind scotch. And I, I think most people don't like scotch. They just know that it makes them look very sophisticated to drink it. <laughs> that's, my, that's my guess, having tried it many times. But I've never been a big beer connoisseur my son actually turned me on to an IPA beer. Uh, it's a Voodoo Ranger beer. You know, I'm not necessarily doing a plug for them. Depending on what your goal is when you drink beer, you may or may not try it now. But I'll tell you what, I, this past weekend, pizza and beer, much as I try to keep my eating pretty clean on the weekends, I'll love pizza and beer. And I got an especially good pizza, and I, I probably ate too much of it. But along with it, because I was eating probably a good half of a large pizza, I had three beers. Now, to most people, I would imagine that doesn't sound like much, but I had three of these Voodoo Ranger beers, and I looked later the next day through the fog of my hangover, <laughs> only to realize they're about 10% alcohol. If your child if your child uh, is, is caught with beer and you see that it is a Voodoo Ranger and you check, it, look, This thing knocked me on my butt. I'm no stranger to beer. I'll have a beer. I'll have a bourbon. I found myself, after eating that pizza, uh, next thing I knew, I was online playing poker. Not that uh, I was doing it for money because our government says that would be illegal. So, of course, I wasn't doing it for money. (laughs) But... I found myself online gambling and woke up Sunday morning with a hangover from three beers. Never happened before. So, parents, beware if you see your kids with this voodoo ranger for adults. If you choose to imbibe and want to try something with a little kick to it, there's my recommendation. Anyway, only one Coors Light in me tonight, so I'm fine to do the show. You know, I was was looking at the stock market before I came on. I think I understand economics better than most people. Now, that doesn't mean I'm an economist. It doesn't mean I'm some great trader or anything like that. It's just that most people spend almost zero time actually studying economics, paying attention to the markets, the bond markets. And, you know, I can rattle on about that stuff. I find it pretty fascinating. But (laughs) as much as I think I know, don't follow me for stock market advice. I am so on the wrong side of the stock market right now. It's not even funny. Now, I think I can see the future, and I think there is a crisis coming that is inevitable at some point, and the further it goes, I also understand that the worse it's actually going to be when it finally hits. But this market behavior, I was looking yesterday, I just started seeing the headlines. I guess CPI, the inflation number beat by a tiny amount, and so everybody started trading. Good times are here again. The market just took off. I, I, I can't understand. It makes zero sense to me at this point absolutely zero cents, Sven Hendrick, who is a, he's a good trader. And you have to understand, well, I'll, I'll read his quote here. He says, you can choose to argue with the market or you can choose to make money. I've tried arguing with the market, but I've come to realize long ago that I prefer making money. <laughs> and this is, this is my problem. I, you, you can look at the stock market whether it's at all-time lows or all-time highs, and you can think, this is insane, it can't last. But there may be indicators, the flow of money that says, yeah, it's going to keep going up. As absurd as it is in our current economic situation right now, the idea that the market would have surging days like it had on Tuesday is insane to think about, yet it happens. And you should be positioned. I let my, I don't want to call it my intellect, that sounds pompous, but I let my, my thinking get in the way and try to just say, i'm I'm smarter than the market. That is rarely the case. You know, and and I was I was thinking about this as I was jotting down some notes to talk about what's going on. <laughs> it is it's It's pretty amazing to me that we seriously live in a time when people don't pay attention to economics. because with what's going on right now with inflation, home affordability, Uh, people not being able to keep up with wages. There's so many things right now that are fairly easily explained to people who understand economics. And you would think after 30, 40, 50 years of this, people would start getting really curious. I mean, think about what's happened to the American family over the past 50 years, because it used to be that just one parent worked. Now both of them have to work. And I'd be really very interested to take a poll of the listening audience or just people in general and find out how many women out there Like, uh, I'm not to say you might not enjoy working. That's something great. I mean, I've I've raised kids. Sometimes you want to get out of the house. You want to get away from kids. You want to talk to adults. You want to feel productive. You may find a career that you love. Nothing against women working. But I would be very curious to know how many women are glad that during the 1970s, when inflation took off, uh, that women moved into the workforce. Because I, I got to tell you, there's certainly years of my life <laughs> where I would be certainly happy to have stayed home with my children and raised my children and had somebody else go out and earn the money. I'd like to have those moments with my children. I'd like to have more free time. I'm so busy right now. I'm just dreaming about the idea of not working for a period of time. But, you know, so, so we went from a one parent worked and we had the American dream. Homes were affordable. You had a car. You didn't have to pay for it for 84 months. (laughs) You didn't have home interest, uh, home equity lines. People weren't racked with credit card debt. You got vacations. You had a defined benefit plan, meaning you had a pension plan. I mean, you know, we we went from that in the 1970s to where we are now, where both parents are forced to work and still struggling, using credit cards to bridge the gap for many people. And hopefully I'm not talking to anybody listening to me, but I would imagine there's somebody out there right now that's struggling a little bit. Yeah, it used to be, and I still remember the days, I'll tell you how old I am. I remember when I was sick, my parents would let me lay in their bed, you know, the big bed. I had a little twin bed. And so when I was sick, also, there was no TV in my room. We weren't allowed to have television. I don't think I had a television in my room the entire time I lived at home until I went off to college. So I could go lay in my parents' bed, in the big bed, and I could watch their television. That was kind of, you know, relaxing while you don't feel well. And I still remember our doctor coming by and stopping at our house and sitting on the edge of my bed and taking my temperature. And I don't remember my parents ever complaining about the cost of it. It was probably 15 bucks for a home visit. Now, medical care is the leading cause of bankruptcy and stress for most people. You know, I mean, the, the drastic change of what's happened to our life, and I don't have the clip, and I wish I did. It would be so perfect for right now. But I saw a clip of Joe Biden where he was uh, having one of his get-off-my-lawn moments where he said, I'm just sick of it. All these people out there saying that inflation is because of all this government spending. It just ain't so. I think I'm almost direct quoting that. No, Joe, it is because of that. It is exactly. And Joe Biden's career actually spans as him being, a, I don't know, was he a congressman first and then a senator? Or has he been a senator parasite his whole life? During the course of his political career, the American dream has gotten further and further, harder and harder to attain. And it is because of that. And I find it interesting that, you know, 350 million people, well, most of say a lot of those are kids, what 220 million people aren't the least bit interested to think because it's not like this is uh, this is fo- folklore that has been handed down for generations. Yeah, back in the early 1600s, you could raise a family on a single fat salary. No, many of the people listening to me right now, it, now know exactly what I'm talking about. That used to be the case. So it's a short period of time, and yet we have accepted what it is right now. So it seems like it might be time to learn a little bit about economics so we don't continue this trend. Yet people are really not very concerned about it. Here's what I can tell and have very little understanding about it. I saw a Twitter post. You know, I talked about the fact that inflation came in a little bit lower than they were expecting. And so the markets had a great day. Everybody's cheering. Everybody's saying everything's working great. Uh, It turns out people started looking through the CPI, which is the Consumer Price Index, where they You know, they look at at what inflation rate is, and they realize that health insurance, according to this report, had come down by 34% over the past year. This is health insurance. Now, I don't know. You can let me know. Has anybody had that experience where your health insurance premiums have come down by 34% over the past year? Now, there was a note on a post about this on Twitter. I I do find some value in the Twitter notes. And this said, medical care costs are shown to decrease by 2%, not 34%. Health insurance, which measures the profit of of insurance companies only, decreased by 34%. The rest of the premium is moved to other categories. Now, I kind of understand this stuff, and I'm not sure exactly what I read. And shouldn't it be fairly easy to measure inflation? You take a basket of goods, rent, mortgage, a car, gasoline, utilities, internet, steak, potatoes, cabbage, whatever it is. You take just a constant list, and you just constantly reprice these things month after month. How hard would that actually be? Instead, they use all kinds of adjustments. Some of the numbers they give us are without food and energy. They say, oh, inflation, you know, this this inflation rate looks pretty good. Of course, that's excluding food and energy. The two things you actually have to have to even survive, they don't count it. They say it's too volatile. Those prices are just too volatile. We want to, don't want to put it in to mess up this metrics. What you do is you get a rolling six-month average. Each, each seventh month, you say, well, the last six months have averaged. That's how you smooth out any volatility. But they won't do that. I mean, only the government could take an easy task, like measuring how much something cost a year ago versus how much it cost today, and make it opaque and manipulated and deceitful. Only the government could possibly do that, and that is what they do. When it comes to health insurance, I, I've i been dying to, to talk about this chart I ran across. I'll read you a little bit of statistics, I know. This is about the 100th. I'd ring a bell if I thought this was actually the one. I, I constantly am trying to bring charts to uh, over-the-air radio. <laughs> it's, it's, it's probably not successful, but I can't contain myself when I see some of these things. Uh, this, is, uh, this is a chart somebody posted, a guy named Charlie Bilello. But he says the average family health insurance premium in the U.S. is up 249% since 2000. The biggest beneficiaries of this massive increase, health insurance companies. UnitedHealth, the largest U.S. insurer, their stock was up 4,120% since 2000 versus only a 340% gain for the S&P. Now, where this is even more interesting to me is I'm looking at this chart, and here I go, I'm going to try to describe it. It starts back at 2000. It's pretty flat. 2005, still pretty flat. Around 2009 it looks like strangely enough the S&P while still fairly flat in this chart the United Healthcare stock starts moving up and up and up. Now what happened in 2009 that could have made this big break between all the rest of the stock market and the largest health insurer in the country? Oh, I know what it was. Obamacare. And this is where I just, oof, I wish I could have, at least get invited as a guest onto a liberal or Democrat radio show. Just to point this out, because there are still people out there that believe Obamacare was about covering the little people, about helping people insure, uh, afford health insurance. No, this stock chart of United Health, and they are not the only one, in the first three years of Obamacare, or the first two years, well, the first two years of Obamacare, the health insurance companies' profits doubled. Now, I think it was the first three years, their profits doubled. That's what Obamacare was about. It was another corporate giveaway couched in the we love you so much, we want you to have coverage stuff. It's really uh, it's just another thing, another thing they get away with. To this day, nobody ever talks about that. Nobody at all. Obamacare, You remember. you remember Obamacare, right? It's still out there. And one of the reasons I know that it's out there is because I get emails towards the end of the year constantly. I swear I can't unsubscribe to these things. I think I looked at the health insurance marketplace because at some point that's the only place you can go. So years ago, I did try to look up a premium when I was just self-employed and they still won't. I can't unsubscribe to this thing. They're constantly sending me emails. Um, but the prices are are absolutely through the roof. It's it's crazy. And nobody, you know, again, that was also the organization that had the $1 billion website. <laughs> they spent a billion dollars to create the Obamacare website, and it didn't even work for a while. You remember that? What what won't we put up with? What won't we put up with? You know, my my favorite part of... A financial crisis is, and and we're starting to see some of this. My favorite part of a financial crisis is the uncovering of fraud that's been going on for years. Now see, it's very easy to keep things like Ponzi schemes afloat, ripping people off while money is being endlessly printed and loaned for zero interest and it's just flowing to people in uh, stimmy checks and everything else. But when markets fall and rates go up, they can't keep this scam going. And so we are entering, and I I don't have a good list here. I saw Lucid Cars. I'm not real familiar with this company. They may be a standalone electric car manufacturer, Lucid. There was a, a statistic out. Now, this is one of those companies that wouldn't exist except for a couple of things. Number one, the government trying to shove electric vehicles down our throat, giving all kinds of incentives to manufacturers to create electric vehicles that our grid cannot even support, that there's a high likelihood may catch fire in your garage. So, of course, all of this at the nexus is a government issue. But it's also an issue of, at the same time, the government is trying to shove this stuff down our throat and encouraging companies to make cars that most people really don't even want, at least not as their primary driver. There's also the Fed printing up money, sending STEMIs to people so they can afford down payments on these things that are really quite unaffordable. Lucid, uh, the statistic I saw was that on every car, this may be the last trailing 12 months, whenever their fiscal year ended up, I said that Lucid on every car lost, anyone, anyone? Are you ready for this one? On every car Lucid sold, they lost $249,000. <laughs> now, as I said, I'm not always great with stock market timing. I certainly don't know everything. But I get a sense that losing a quarter of a million dollars on every car you sell, I don't think that's a sustainable business model. (laughs) Is it just me? Is that the case? Because actually, when you get to those numbers, you have to understand, you really don't want to sell more than, well, you don't want to sell any cars. (laughs) If every time you sell a car, you lose another quarter million dollars, you want to sell as few as possible. Theoretically, uh, that's, that's, a, that's a bit of me trying to make some light of it. But I will tell you, losing a quarter of a million dollars in every car you sell is not sustainable. And see these companies who had endless streams of this funny money-free, printed-up, interest-free cash, that's over. And now they're looking at this going, oh, wait, we, we were supposed to make a profit on these cars? To sustain our company, we can't just borrow endlessly at 0% and sucker more people in because they also have free money and they will send it to us to try to get some return on it as an investment. They're actually thinking to themselves, and this is what the next next year, two, three, four years, you remember, dot-com crash, you remember all the companies that were exposed then, 2008, 2009, you remember all the companies that were exposed then. This is my favorite part of a financial crisis, and I think it's starting. When I come back... There is one saving grace to our financial system, and that is, of course, all of us know at least our money is safe in the bank, right? I mean, we have got the rock-steady FDIC guaranteeing our deposits. Helps us sleep good to know there's some, at least there's some adults in Washington, D.C. looking over us. Well, we'll talk about the FDIC when I get back. Stick around. When I tell you that this country and our government is run by the worst among us, I don't know if people chalk that up. Oh, the guy's a libertarian. He just hates government. He's unreasonable. No, I'm I'm saying that just as a human being. We have got some of the worst people that humanity has to offer running not only our government, a lot of governments around the world, but we really, we've got a special class of just freaks and weirdos uh, in charge of us. Did you see this uh, expose on the FDIC? That's right, that rock-solid institution. They've got those very boring, bland signs at the bank right next to where you hand over your hard-earned savings into, uh, to the bank teller. You're protected by the FDIC. A brand-new expose out this week paints banking regulator the Federal Reserve Insurance Corp. as a toxic work environment where strip club visits, sex with underlings, and drinking at work not to mention male workers texting female co-workers photos of their genitals, were all part of the day-to-day culture. (laughs) That should make us all feel better. Uh, This story might cause a bank run. A Wall Street Journal expose was out on Monday, and hours later, FDIC Chairman Martin Grunberg announced that the agency has engaged Baker Hostetler for a comprehensive review following. (laughs) Yeah. They're, hey, hey! don't worry, don't worry. Keep your money in the bank. The FDIC is going to investigate itself with a law firm that they hired, and I predict they'll find some limited wrongdoing. They'll probably can a couple of people to put a public face to it, and that'll carry on as usual. In a staff video, Groomberg stated that necessary changes would be made based on the law firm's findings. A journal's investigation revealed several incidents at the FDIC, including a male supervisor in Denver engaging in sexual relations with an employee, bragging about it to colleagues, and encouraging her to consume alcohol during work hours. <laughs> this is the supervisor. Additionally, it was reported that senior bank ex- examiners sent inappropriate images to female staff and extended invitations to a strip club. Despite these allegations, the implicated men remain on the FDIC's payroll. <laughs> Good luck to all of us. I'm telling you, I don't know what it is about this government. It's like a, a degenerate magnet in Washington, D.C. Now, I don't know if all these people are based in Washington, D.C., but the FDIC, it's the F in there that I'm... It is the federal. The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, which we shouldn't even have. It actually encourages banks to take unnecessary risks. Now, any good libertarian who understands these things will tell you Uh, we might actually do some research into the financial health of our banking institutions if they didn't try to lull us to sleep with this FDIC guarantee. And, And just spoiler alert here, the FDIC does not have near enough if there was a true banking crisis in this country as it stands. I wish I had the, I've seen the statistics before. I don't know, there's something like they can insure 6% of all deposits, actually. If we had a, like a real top-down, banks took our money, a bunch of fraud exposed, black hole stuff, I think the FDIC, they're, really, they're going to be of no use to us in a very, very large banking crisis. But if you're looking for pictures of male genitalia, apparently the FDIC may be the place to go. I wanted to get into this clip too. Boy, I'm kind of running out of time here. Yeah, I tell you what, I'm going to I'm going to take a break and then make an executive decision because IBM is making a change to its retirement plan. And I think it's it's kind of interesting. Yeah, I think I'm going to do it. I've got a lot of stuff for today's shows, but I think this is at least interesting enough to me because it'll, this will be one of those things that if I point it out now and then flesh out the idea a little bit, I may look like a prophet years down the road. So I'm going to go ahead and do that. Stick around. I'll be right back.
0: All right, we are back.
1: This is the Mike Madison Show, 103.9 WYAB. So, as I was talking earlier about what what kind of the average American middle-class family had back in the 1970s, one of the things was, instead of a 401k at the time, you had a pension plan. And a pension plan, for those of us who maybe have never seen one in our entire lives... Is basically, you know, for every year, a lot of people put in state service, you know, you work for the government and you can work for 20 years, 25 years, whatever it is, and retire with full benefits and then go out and get you another job and have a double income for the last part of your life. It's a genius plan as a libertarian. I got to tell you, I'm not thrilled by that idea. But people had, uh, a lot of people had these pension plans, which guaranteed you an income. You weren't subjected to the whims of the stock market. You can imagine somebody who had saved their whole life, invested in the markets, and then decided to retire in 2002 after the dot-com bust, and they watched 60% of their portfolio go poof within about a year and a half. Similarly, if somebody was to save all their money and decide to retire in 2009, 2010, ouch. So the, the beauty of a pension plan is that you're not subjected to those kinds of swings. You have something that you can count on, something that's calculated. And so for a lot of people, that's a very good thing. Now, IBM has made a switch, and I'm going to play this clip. It's a long one, and I should have chopped it up and played the meatiest parts. But I think they get pretty quick to the point uh, in the beginning of this thing. And then I'll tell you where I think this may be headed.
0: A recent announcement that just came out yesterday from IBM where they're changing their 401k plan to a defined benefit plan. Now, this feels insane, right? They're, they're converting from a 401k plan, which means they make contributions matching their employees to um, a, a, you know, defined contribution plan that accumulates in the employee name and, you know, is, um, has been by far the most popular vehicle for people to invest in a long time, Right. They actually just announced that they're switching to a cash balance defined benefit plan where they're offering a guaranteed return to their employees of effectively treasuries plus 2%. That's actually not true, by the way, in the short term. So, like, the structure of this, this is extraordinary, but I'll just cut to the chase and say all of it actually appears to be a way for IBM to issue bonds to its employees. And
1: that... Actually, but they're I mean, selling it as guaranteed, you know, they're giving their employees guaranteed returns. This is terrific. You'll love it. Yep.
0: Which, is, which is, by the way, exactly what an investment-grade bond is, right? It's Or any bond, for that matter. It's a guaranteed return. Guess what? You're going to love it. This goes a little step further, right? Because it actually does offer an element of guarantee to their employees. It's, you know, IBM has always been a pension innovator. So I think this is actually a really important one.
1: So I'll leave it there. Um, so if you understand, a defined contribution plan is a 401k. And you take your risks uh, in the underlying investments, whatever you choose to invest in, and then however your investments perform when you retire, that's what you got. A defined benefit plan, you don't have the risk of the market. They just basically tell you with enough you know years served, they'll give you the calculation, and here's what you'll draw on a monthly basis when you retire. You can also opt in many cases for a lump sum, but it's reduced, right? So to a lot of people, the idea of the safety of the defined benefit, meaning you just get this guaranteed retirement income, is quite attractive. What I find interesting is that IBM is rolling this out now. And if you heard what he said, he said, it looks like this is a very good way to sell their employees IBM bonds. And what they... See, IBM used to be able to take in money... From the public and pay out almost zero interest on their bonds. I'm sure when interest rates were zero, but now that interest rates are creeping up around five percent, well, then if uh, if IBM wants to borrow some money, they've got to offer you know seven, eight, depending on the structure of the bond, maybe nine percent. Ouch, that's going to hurt them. They're so used to paying two percent on their bonds, now they have to pay seven, so they go okay. So maybe nobody wants to buy the bonds <laughs> from them right now either that maybe they would have to offer such a high interest rate to get anybody to buy their bonds. So now they've got their entire staff. I don't know how many people work for IBM. I should have looked this up. I'm sure it's in the hundreds of thousands, I would imagine. Now they're going to sell them basically their own bonds. It's a way for IBM to bring money into the company just by promising people something down the line. Now, where I say that I see this leading is for years and years... uh, Actually, probably before the great financial crisis, I had a suspicion that the federal government and it it's almost funny how naive I was at the time. I don't know what the debt of the United States was during the just before the financial crisis, probably eight or nine trillion dollars. nothing in today's uh, dollars, right? But I remember thinking, boy, the government is just going so deep in debt at some point. I always thought, they would go in, and they did try to launch this under Obama. It was kind of a soft launch. I think they've tried this a couple of times. They did something called a MIRA instead of an IRA. It was a MIRA, and it was essentially something you could invest in, and the government would give you a, a guaranteed rate of return on it as opposed to investing in IRA in underlying stocks, and I'm sure it was the same thing. They just took your money. You essentially were loaning it to the federal government, and they were going to pay you an interest rate on it over the years. But I've always thought that that big pot of money that is sitting in 401Ks, your 401K, my 401K, everybody's 401K, is uh, in the trillions of dollars. And I always thought the government would have to look at that. At some, someday they are going to get so desperate because things are going to be going so haywire because of their profligate spending that they're going to look at that 401K market and say, you know what we could do? Japan doesn't want to give us any more money. China doesn't want to give us any more money. None of these other countries want to buy our debt because they can tell we're just reckless with our spending and we're no good for it. But what we could do is go into all of those 401ks, and, and, and I believe they would do this after a financial crisis when people are really hurting, right? Everybody just says, oh, I'm done with the stock market. I just took a prison pounding. I'm not going to do that again. And so the government will come in like the savior. They'll tell you, hey... Oh, well, that stock market's been tough on you. Let, let me, and the government come and put its armor on your shoulder. i tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a better deal. I'm going to take all that money in your 401k, and I'm going to replace it with a bunch of U.S. government IOUs that just pay you a defined amount of interest on it. And I always felt like the 401k market, because of all the fat cash that was in that thing, was going to be a target of our government to essentially nationalize 401ks, take that money for themselves to spend or to pay off to them. <laughs> Did you hear that? <laughs> I almost said to pay off debt. <laughs> They're not ever going to pay off debt, just to spend. They would reach in because they want the cash for one project or another, one war or another. They just go in and take all the 401k cash and just stuff everybody's 401k accounts with worthless government IOUs. Well, IBM is essentially doing that kind of thing right now. It's not the same. I don't know. If, I think IBM's in pretty good financial shape, although I don't follow them and their financials. But. They are using this probably as an opportunity to fatten their own nest while telling their employees, we're doing it because we love you. It's a guaranteed plan. What's not to love? So we'll see. Just remember this day, November 16th of 2023, that Mike Madison warned you that someday the federal government was going to come after your 401k and they were going to do it under the guise of helping you. That's what's so sad. Now, I would have thought, because I thought this before the financial crisis, I really thought they might make their move then. But the debt was only probably eight or nine trillion dollars at the time. The Fed hadn't even slammed interest rates down to zero, but they played all of those tricks. I think they're running out of gimmicks to keep this thing going, and I just don't believe they can resist the amount of American cash that is sitting in retirement accounts as it sits right now. We'll see. I'll either be a prophet or what I am oftentimes just overly overly paranoid deluded by my intense hatred for the. US federal government We'll see kind of take a break be right back
0: Place so dark you can't see the end. Eyes cock back shot, which can't defend the rain, then sense dripping. Acidic questions, forcefully the power suggestion. Then with the eyes shut, looking through the rust and rotten dust. A small spot of light floods the floor and pours over the rusted world and pretend. And the eyes open and it's
1: dark again. From the top to the bottom. the core I forgot. In the middle of my clock. my safety. Alright, I'm pouring through my notes. Thinking, okay, I don't have time to get near. All of this out of there, so what should I get into? Well, as long as we're talking about spending and our reckless federal government, I present to you your new Republican staunch conservative Speaker of the House. Uh, Apparently, they just passed another stopgap spending bill. And let's hear who passed it. And again, this is led by Mike, what's his name, Mike Johnson? i got to be honest, I almost don't even want to know his name. Because I want to be so divorced from national politics so much. But I believe his name is Mike Johnson. Here's the story about what Mike Johnson has just accomplished in just a few short weeks of his illustrious tenure uh, as your conservative House Speaker. Democrats stepped in to save the day on Tuesday helping House Speaker Mike Johnson avert a government shutdown despite opposition from Republicans in the Freedom Caucus who opposed the bill due to a lack of offsetting spending cuts. According to Punchbowl News' Jake Sherman, more Democrats voted for it than Republicans. Quote, The House Freedom Caucus opposes the proposed, quote, clean, unquote, continuing resolution as it contains no spending reductions, no border security, and not a single meaningful win for the American people, unquote. That is what the House Freedom Caucus said uh, Tuesday. In a statement, quote, Republicans must stop negotiating against ourselves over fear of what the Senate may do with the promise, quote, roll over today and we'll fight tomorrow, unquote. There he is, ladies and gentlemen. Now, again, I'm still thrilled to death that Kevin McCarthy was embarrassed and sent packing. But if you were under any illusion that you just got some kind of a game changing conservative there, some rock ribbed uh, Republican uh, I would dissuade you of that notion. Now That's not the only thing Mike Johnson has done recently, and <laughs> I would imagine a lot of people were uh, with me on that one, although I, I'm, I'm aware of how the political hypnosis works because I've already seen it online. Mike, he only had a few weeks. He's new to the job. He didn't want to have a shutdown. He's accomplished something great. They'll definitely tackle spending. I think they've got continuing resolution till maybe some spending bills in December and then some in January. They'll probably spend some do something really, really great around Christmas time when everybody is completely distracted, of course. But Mike Johnson also did this, so uh, if you were against it for that, I bet a lot of people he a lot of people judging by this clip, a lot of people are with him. This is Mike Johnson again:
0: The cause for a ceasefire
1: are outrageous) cow. Now, there's a lot of people out there that will agree with that. Uh, why don't they just chant, kill more people, kill more people, kill more people. It does, doesn't kind of seem like the same thing. Now, I, everyone says, uh, yeah, I don't even want to go through all of the talking points that are justifying this war. But this is Mike Johnson. Of course, he was speaking at the uh, large Israeli rally uh, in Washington, D.C., I I wouldn't blame a giant rally of Jewish people outraged by what Hamas did, that absolutely horrific attack saying, you know, defeat Hamas, defeat, dismantle Hamas, something like that. But no ceasefire. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? I mean, ceasefire just basically says we're going to stop killing people, right? Both sides. I love the talking point. Oh, well, Mike, there was a ceasefire until October 7th. Well, <laughs> you know, I mean... I guess that's one way to put it. The Palestinians were still living in an open-air prison. They were still having their homes confiscated and bulldozed. Their kids were still being shot in the crotch for slinging a rock across a wall. But So I guess you could consider that a a ceasefire, as long as the Palestinians just stood back and took it, took everything that the uh, Israeli government had to dish out. But... uh, there's also a picture of Mike Johnson at this at this rally. See, I know there's a lot of people out there who, they may wrestle with this inside their minds. They'll never say it in front of the tribe, but it kind of feels brutal what Israel's doing. There is a lot of footage of a lot of children with a lot of blood uh, on the limbs they have left. And so I would imagine there's times where your conscience must knock on you a little bit and go, gosh, can we really support this? I mean, I, I don't like Hamas, but you know what? A two and a half year old girl is not part of Hamas. She didn't vote for Hamas. She doesn't know what Hamas is. She might not be able to say Hamas. So you, you probably wrestle with that. But the, I think the saving thing is, is that people think, well, I can't do, I can't be with the pro-Palestinian people, the people that are trying to make Israel stop, because if I do, I'm going to look like some radical Democrat or liberal. So the tribe keeps you chanting for more war and more money to Israel. But that's interesting because on this stage of this rally was Mike Johnson holding up the hands, you know, kind of the victory thing, like when a fighter wins a fight, lifting the victory hands. He was holding hands with Hakeem Jeffries and Chuck Schumer. Huh, that's interesting. And, and it, as it turns out, while you don't maybe share a belief with Rashida Tlaib or Ilhan Omar, and believe me, I can't stand a lot of what those people stand for. So a lot of people say, well, if Rashida Tlaib or Ilhan Omar wants a ceasefire, if they stand with Palestine, I can't do that because I don't want to be seen as some radical Democrat. Well, you know who you are supporting the position of? You're supporting the position of Chuck Schumer, Hakeem Jeffries, Joe Biden, Antony Blinken, his Secretary of State, and Hillary Clinton. You're on the side of the issue with Hillary Clinton. So if you think maybe you're avoiding being seen with these Democrats or seen to be some kind of a liberal, no, maybe that won't be the case. But you will be seen in the likes of those people, not to mention Lindsey Graham, Marco Rubio, and the ever-evil Nikki Haley. I'm just saying, you know, if you're trying to avoid keeping company with really disgusting people, uh, you may not be on the right side of this issue either. Anyway, that's all the time I've got. Hope everybody has a great day. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.
0: Up. Ready or not? Here comes the boys for the sound. Here comes the ready or not. How you like me now? I say
1: we rap the South, So what you talking
0: about? I'm not running out my mouth. I know this without a doubt. Cause if you know these streets, then these streets know you. And when, when it's time to handle business, then we know what to do. What's it do. Me and my crew, we stay true. Old school and new. Many will call, but the chosen are few. We ride.